Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Mike Hancocks, and our topic today is autonomous vehicles, uh, otherwise known as driverless vehicles, which will be one of the topics at the 2017 New Partners for Smart Growth Conference which this year will take place from February 2nd through the 4th in St. Louis, Missouri. If you haven't registered, you can still register for the conference by going to newpartners.org. Before we get to today's guests, I also want to share with our listeners a unique opportunity to get in on the beta version of the Infinite Earth Lab program that we are launching in partnership with the Local Government Commission. This year-long online training, mentorship, and networking program is focused on helping local sustainability and equity leaders become more effective in their work and building a strong national tribe of like-minded professionals. For a very limited time, you can get into this year-long program as a charter member at a super discounted price of only $97. To get this price, you need to register before February 2nd. You can learn more and sign up to be part of this great community and training program by going to www.infiniteearthradio.com slash waitlist. Let's get to today's podcast and our guest. Lisa Nissenson has 20 years of experience in leadership in smart growth, sustainable development, and civic engagement. She founded an award-winning tech startup, Greater Places, will release a mobile app in May and is working with Alta Planning and Design to integrate technology into healthy, active communities. Lisa, welcome and thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Our other guest is Ryan Snyder. Ryan is a principal with Transpo Group, a transportation planning and engineering firm that prepares sustainable transportation plans. Ryan is a widely known presenter, activist, and educator, and has established himself as one of the forefront experts of the Complete Streets Movement. Ryan, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So let's, we're, we're talking about autonomous vehicles today. So let's start out with a real basic question. What is an autonomous vehicle? Um, either one of you want to tackle that? I, I can do that if you like. First of all, there, there are what we call five levels of autonomous vehicles that have been identified. The first level is where you just have your basic sort of technology that we've had for years, for example, cruise control. And now we're getting adaptive cruise control and lane assist and park assist. Level two is where you combine two of those together and can use them simultaneously. Level three is where the driver can let the car do the driving most of the time, but has to intervene at certain intervals. Uh, Level four is full self-driving, except that it's kind of restricted as to where it can go. And level five is unrestricted, fully self-driving. And so what's the, you know, we've heard a lot in the news about autonomous vehicles and testing some of those. And and some of the articles you read suggest that they're coming a lot faster than people realize. So 
any sense of what the what the timing is and what the state of the technology is? So the status of autonomous vehicles, and Ryan did a really good job of talking about the different phases towards autonomy, but there's also various vehicle types that are coming online. So it's not just your car that used to have a driver replaced with a car without a driver, but you've also got autonomous shuttle makers. And recently, James Corden, who does carpool karaoke, rode on one of those Ollie shuttles. So if you Google Ollie, O-L-L-I, and James Corden, one of my dreams is to have him do carpool karaoke on a, on a driverless shuttle. And, and I could add to that, uh, many cars sold today have level two technology. I mean, just your lane assist, your park assist, adaptive cruise control. And so that's become very, very common. But there are, uh, you know, manufacturers who are definitely working on level four and level five, like fully self-driving vehicles, and they're they're testing right now. So the, the technology is coming along quite well and quite fast. Both Uber and Lyft aim to have autonomous vehicle service on the streets by the year 2021. So it's coming pretty quickly. Some observers say it's going to take significantly longer than, than that. The more, most optimistic people are saying, looking at those dates, uh, the more pessimistic people are saying it's going to be 40 or 50 years before the use of these is widespread. I'm pretty certain that within 10 to 15 years, we will see a significant number of fully self-driving vehicles on our streets and roads. You know, I've heard there's, like you said, Uber and Lyft, so the kind of the cab services, the commercial driver services. And then, you know, I've heard a lot about the buses and trucks. That So basically, the push would come more from people who are going to save a lot of money by not having to pay drivers. And so is there some sense that those things will move faster than individuals owning autonomous vehicles? Absolutely. Where there's economic interest, those those are going to be first. And you could look at, and, and that really includes your freight haulers, transit operators, and your taxi and Uber and Lyft type services. Uber and Lyft, are, I believe, are going to be first because they don't have tr- uh, truck drivers unions to deal with. And it's a lot simpler for them. But uh, where there, wherever there's an economic benefit, that's where you're going to see it first. I think it's also worth mentioning that there's different phases for how this is going to literally roll out. And that in the beginning, you'll have proof of concept on a private site because private roads will be easier to deploy than on public streets. So you'll have proving ground sorts of applications that will then go to on-campus service for testing. Uh, Then you'll go to the next step, which will be circulators, and then that giant leap. And even once you get some of these vehicles, especially when they're mimicking transit on the roads, for some time you may actually find that an operator will be on the vehicle until the public gets used to the fact that something may or may not be driving on its own under the influence of an iPad or some sort of off-site operator. So let's talk about some of the implications, right? So, you know, there's a time frame issue of is this going to be is this going to be rolling out in the next 3 or 4 years? It'll phase in over some time. Is it going to be widespread in 10, 15, 50 years? But what are some of the implications in terms of infrastructure, community design? What are some of the things we need to be thinking about is it, it seems like this is kind of almost inevitable that we're going to be going down this path. Ryan, do you want to take a crack at that first? Sure. And this is something I've been focusing on. I'm on the autonomous vehicle 
task force for the National Committee on Uniform Traffic Control Devices. And we just had our meetings this week, and I was at the meetings. This was a huge topic of conversation. So far, it doesn't look like there's a whole lot of additional infrastructure needs in that the, the manufacturers are, are creating vehicles that can deal with existing infrastructure. However, they like well-maintained, well-marked lane lines and curbs, and they can use signs. So in other words, the technology, the LIDAR, the radar, the cameras, the different sort of redundant technologies that they use can pretty much sense with existing sort of infrastructure that's out there. But the most important thing is to have well-maintained uh, stripes on the street. Lisa, do you want to add anything to that in terms of potential implications in terms of infrastructure and community design? Absolutely. And uh, one of the big things that we are looking at is what happens in areas with heavy pedestrian traffic, because in the first sort of rah-rah statements people had, yay, cars will stop for pedestrians and the death rate will be lower. But what is missing is what happens when there's 100 cars and 200 pedestrians um, for whom crossing in the middle of the street now uh, carries little risk because they won't get hit. And all of a sudden, traffic comes to a halt and there's gridlock. So one of the things we're looking at is, is are there going to be areas in cities where cars are actually autonomous cars will not be allowed in streets, but you will have active modes like bike and ped. And then some of the higher capacity autonomous vehicles maybe shuttles and vans, because you want to minimize those conflicts. And again, like Ryan said, without having to heavy up on a lot of different infrastructure to make things happen. So is it likely that over time, I think Lisa might have mentioned the idea of like a vehicle where you have meetings in the vehicle. Is it likely that over time that once you get to autonomous vehicles, the shape and size of vehicles that are designed to move will move away from the uniform sizes that, you know, we're kind of used to now? Or will, it, will, or will the vehicles look a lot like the vehicles that we know now that just they'll, won't be driven by a person? I think there'll be all kinds of sizes and shapes, although they will fit into narrower lanes. But uh, certainly you don't need the steering wheel and, and a lot of the things that we now, equipment we now have, the little Ollie shuttle bus that Lisa mentioned is a 12-passenger bus, and it's pretty small. It's, it's not much bigger than a regular car. And you'll have the need for anything from a single-passenger, very, very small vehicle, to a six-passenger, 12-passenger, an 18-passenger, and a 40-passenger bus. So there's going to be a whole range of things. And then there will be different types of equipment on the inside. I mean, there, there may be eating facilities or even some of your larger vehicles may have sleeping facilities or even gym facilities in them. So, you know, I, I do anticipate uh, a variety in that. So Local Motors that makes Ollie's, actually the Ollie is 3D printed. They have a room that's as big as maybe a big kitchen with a lot of nozzles, and they literally 3D print, which means that with very little um, effort into changing the CAD design, you could add whatever you want to or change the shape or make it as big or as small as you want to. And then once it's obsolete, you can 
basically dismantle it and feed the plastic back into the hopper and make something new. It's mind blowing what's happening, but the idea that a sedan is going to be like pretty much the exemplar of cars, that's probably going to go away. So all I can think about is, I don't know if you saw the movie, The it's a Bruce Willis movie. The I think it's the, the fifth element where there's a, they have like little flying taxis and there's a guy, there's a driver in it who's all mechanical and it's just kind of uh, hard to comprehend. You know, you're talking in the next 20 years, 30 years, just radical changes. There's got to be some implication to that though, of the notion that everything would be, there'd be a lot of different sizes because our infrastructure now is, is all pretty designed around, you know, vehicles, whether they, you know, there's a pretty tight range in terms of the width of vehicles to accommodate lanes. Will that stay or, or or will we see some kind of different thing where there's different types of lanes for different types of vehicles? Hard to say. I, th- I think we're going to go to narrower lanes and I think the vehicles will fit in the smaller lanes w- with the sort of crash avoidance technology. We won't need as much space between cars. So I, I'm hoping that there are restrictions on sort of the, the width and size of vehicles. Um, that's a really good point. And I want to go back to the idea that you may be sleeping uh, and the notion that our highways may start to act more like railroads, really, where you get your sleeper cars platooning, even commercial office space. How's that tax revenue going to be recouped when someone can actually avoid having an office, but instead roam around their different regional offices to have the meetings. And and those are some of the bigger picture issues that I think cities need to come to grips with, especially as the gas tax uh, starts to become less and less relevant. So let's talk about what are the, what are the positives to society of moving to autonomous vehicles? Okay. Yeah. I, I just, actually realized that was sounding very negative. And I do think that there are amazing positives. I think that some of the benefits are that if you look in cities with heavy transit, right now, the quote unquote winners are the property owners, the residents, the businesses within a quarter to a half mile of a heavy rail or a light rail station. And what you will begin to have is with on demand and other types of circulators that to maybe two or three miles. So all of a sudden you have a lot more people who are enjoying the benefits with seamless rides to and from. Some of the benefits I see immediately, the safety benefits I I believe will be enormous. We're we're killing about Mm 38,000 people per year on U.S. streets uh, right now. And that, that should over time go way, way down. You'll have mobility for people right now who don't have mobility. Or seniors who, who are too uh, old to drive or people with disabilities or even people who are too young to drive will have a greater sense of mobility. Better use of your time so you won't have to spend your time driving. You can sleep or read or do something else with your time. But I, I'm looking at other very large benefits as well. I think transit is going to be a big winner in this and that by taking the driver out of the equation – um, you're dramatically reducing the cost of public transit. And, and I will define transit as everything from your large 40-passenger buses down to the, the two- and three-passenger lift line type service. I think that 
with transit, we'll have the ability to do things like what I call lane clearance technology. So when there's a bus coming along, everybody else gets out of the way. It's like a virtual bus lane. And we'll be able to have virtual bus lanes instead of fixed, very expensive fixed infrastructure. We'll have many more opportunities to match people into two, three, four, six-person, eight-person vehicles. And so there will be greenhouse gas reductions. We'll be able to do uh, more road diets in the streets because we, the, the vehicles won't take up so much space in the streets. So many of our four-lane streets today could become two-lane streets with wider sidewalks and better bike lanes and more public space. So I, I see that the potential upside is being very high. I could even look at, with lane clearance technology, the possibility of high-speed buses that, that maybe go 120 or 150 miles an hour on freeways. So um, the big upside is, is, is there. seems like there'd be a pretty dramatic reduction in the amount of uh, parking needed and in the total number of vehicles on the road. Yeah, the amount of parking structures and parking lots that could be converted to housing or open space, definitely a, a huge a huge benefit. So let's then go to the flip side. What are going to be the challenges? What are the negative unintended consequences of moving to autonomous vehicles? I think one of them it does involve the active modes of travel where it may become super easy just to to get an Uber for that last mile or that last half mile. And then you, you start to have fewer benefits that are associated with people out walking, environmental, health. So that's one of the uh, downsides we see. And I, I will start with what I believe is the, the largest and absolutely unavoidable downside that will happen. That'll be a lot, the loss of jobs for drivers. And those will be taxis, buses, you know, freight haulers. And, and there are millions of those jobs. And these are for People without college degrees are better, relatively paying, good paying jobs. That is a big downside. The second is related to what Lisa mentioned, the potential for induced travel. You know, if you can live a couple hours away and, and buy a home in the suburbs that's cheaper and be able to sleep or read or use your time, for some people, they would be willing to take longer commutes. And, you know, with the cost of travel, I think, going down quite a bit. It could really induce travel, and that could, you know, result in more greenhouse gas emissions and even more congestion and and sort of more auto-oriented environments. But to me, the outcome depends on what sort of public policies we have in place. I think with the right policies in place, we get more people out of cars, more people into transit, and more people walking and bicycling. Clearly, I'm not as well-versed on these issues as you are, but... Since the Great Recession of 2008, one out of every six blue-collar workers in the United States has dropped out of the workforce. Mm -hmm. And in many states, driving is one of the number one professions. So, and you, and, you, and you throw on top of that, the other thing that's going on is you see things like in, in Seattle, um, Amazon is um, piloting employee-less grocery stores. Mm-hmm. So you walk in, you pick up your groceries, technology charges it to your card, you walk out with your stuff, right. you don't check out, there's no worker. So this continuous downward pressure on employment um, creates huge, huge issues that I'm not sure our political system or our, even our thinking about the notion that how important labor is and how there's a whole thing in our society, our whole culture is built on the value of work, and we are continuously eliminating the need for labor. 
Well, and, and add to your grocery store example, you go online and order your groceries and a little robot vehicle brings them to you. Yeah, absolutely. And the induced travel is something I had, n- I had not even thought about. So so this seems like at the end of the day, I think of technology like the, um, the, the easy pass that allows me not to have to wait in line at a toll booth. Somebody lost a job, but I think society overall is better off. The question is, how do we make sure right. those benefits to society are more distributed to everyone, right? So, and, and we're losing jobs throughout our economy to automation. And so it, it needs to be tackled on a larger level, this, this loss of jobs. I do think, though, that you know, we faced these different changes in employment before with the you know, industrialization, and we did find new ways to both create jobs and reinvent jobs so that uh, what you may see is while there may not be a traditional driver on a vehicle, we would have new sorts of jobs. Or uh, one of the things we've talked about is having part of a local government office be in the circulating transit. So even though they're not driving, they are there for just in case they're needed to override something if there's a glitch, and we we haven't talked about that part, but there is always that chance that with technology, our systems will be hacked. It could be that we have new generations of jobs that are there just in case. Uh, The bigger the vehicle, the bigger the, the chance of calamity. And so you may find that some of the larger vehicles actually never do go fully autonomous, but we find new ways to use people on those vehicles as they circulate. We also may find with new types of patterns in urban growth, we repurpose some of the parking lots so that those become both distribution centers, parking for the individual AVs that come in from from rural areas. There's just all sorts of possibilities that we don't really know what's going to happen yet. USDOT has been very good in being both flexible and also rewarding So I hope that that will continue with the new administration, but it will definitely continue with the private sector as uh, people who own and manage real estate, you know, face changing trends in residential and office and even retail space. And how do you rethink those given the melting boundaries between transportation and and land use? Yeah, I think, I mean, clearly you're right in that. Technology has always destroyed jobs and other jobs have been created. I, I just don't know that it's, I think two things are kind of, ha- and but the other thing that, and, and that's inevitable adjustment. We have made adjustments over time in our thinking about the economy. It's been a very long time, but at some point we went from work weeks that were 100 hours a week to 60 hours a week to 40 hours a week. <laughs> now back up to 50, yeah. <laughs> right, but but that was a big adjustment, right? That was that you, you suddenly now distributed the same number of hours over a much bigger group of people. And I just wonder if we're ready to make that kind of move. Are we ready to go to a 30-hour work week? And are people thinking about how do we make those kind of transitions? And the other challenge is that the shifting of jobs is clearly there's going to be jobs created creating these autonomous vehicles, the technology, the programming, but you have a growth of some very high skilled jobs and a destruction of a lot of blue collar work jobs. And that's going to create lots of upheaval in society unless we figure out a way to, to manage the impacts of that. Yep. And it's happening so fast. That's what's different about some of the earlier shifts that we saw with technology or with industrialization 
uh, most of the cities. Right. I really hope there will be more leadership. And that's why I got into this, quite frankly, was to harness a lot of good thinking at a local level as people are looking at economic shifts and saying, hey, you know, this thing is coming fast. How do we do fast action plans to really tackle this and make sure that cities don't give away the store, so to speak, when it comes to signing agreements on data, for example, or not making sure of getting enough insurance. So if we get it right, we, we if autonomous vehicles come along, the technology works the way the promise of the technology is bound to, you know, it works and we get all these things right in terms of how we transition. What's the transportation system look like? What's the commute look like for the average person 30 years from now? A lot of choices. You can walk, bicycle, take a two person or a six person or an eight person lift line or Uber pool or a small shuttle or a full passenger bus without so much congestion. To me, the most important thing is that we get the right policies in place, and those have to do with how this is all priced and the sort of time advantages that we might give to people in higher occupancy vehicles. Um, And adding on to that, uh, there's a a term out there called mobility as a service. And in the future, you may not own a car, but something like a transfer between modes, which is very arduous now and uncertain, will be completely seamless. And that has a lot of advantages as well of helping people who now may be just too far away or have to make too many bus transfers. That's not going to be the case anymore. It's going to be just as easy to get somewhere as if you had your own car. So so that's how I see a lot of this shaking out. So, you know, so what you're suggesting is I'm going to leave my house, I'm going to walk to the corner, and when I get to the corner, there's going to be a a driverless Uber there ready to pick me up, drop me off at the train station or the bus station at the immediate moment that I can get on the bus, which will take me close to my office, and I'll grab have an Uber waiting for me there, and it'll take me right to my office. And it'll seem like just without any thought that that'll just happen automatically. That's one scenario. I mean, the other scenario is you take your bicycle the whole way because I think that's going to be a lot safer. Or you, or you take, you. or you take the six passenger Uber pool vehicle the entire way. Or, you know, the bus service should be much better. Lots of options. Yep. More options if we put the right public policies in place. Fantastic. Uh, thank you both for being here today. I hopefully. You'll both of you be working real hard to make sure we get the right policies in place. And uh, thanks for the conversation today. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to you joining us next week on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infiniteearthradio and Twitter by following at infiniteearthradio.com.